This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, Tip and the Gipper. As we scratch our heads and lose our temper at dysfunction in modern Washington, musing on the intellectual circles that Barack Obama and John Boehner are trying to run around each other with Ted Cruz somewhere out in right field, we seem to wax nostalgic for a simpler time when presidents liked to talk only from 3 by 5 cards and House speakers fed the daily TV appetite with grunts barked from his car as he made his way to the Capitol. And yet, if you believe many of the accounts, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill made it work. They fought like dogs, they swore a lot, they hewed to their political pedigree, but they respected each other's offices and each other's power. And when quitting time came, 6 p.m. on opposite ends of Pennsylvania Avenue back in those days, they were willing to lay down their arms and put politics aside, Reagan and Tip, champagne and cigars, telling their old Irish tales. True or not, there have been plenty of folks who question the image of a time when politics worked, who say it's a myth engineered to stir discontent with our current leaders, but Chris Matthews doesn't, and he was there. Now the host of MSNBC's Hardball and the author of a slew of books, including most recently Jack Kennedy, Elusive Hero, Chris was the young speechwriter for Jimmy Carter, who, through ambition and patience and good mentoring by the likes of the legendary Kirk O'Donnell, made his way to the front lines of the 1980s political Donnybrook as an aide to House Speaker, the man from North Cambridge, Massachusetts, Tip O'Neill. Chris will be the first to tell you he's not everyone's cup of tea, but he occupies a special niche among the hosts of modern cable shows. He actually lived the life. For my generation of ex-White House and Hill aides, that gives him special credibility. One generation before us, Chris was scrapping for the same opportunities we found with Bill Clinton. And while many of us veered into law, lobbying, or PR, Chris has become a storyteller across many mediums, using his experience to draw tangents to American history before and the American present we're living through today. Chris Matthews, author of Tip and the Gipper, When Politics Worked, welcome to Polyoptics. Right. And uh, you mentioned I'm not everyone's cup of tea. Well, apparently I am enough people's because I'm the top rated show on my network now. Uh, Chris, <laughs> you, you've been at it <laughs> I'm not going to let time. you get away with that one. Go ahead. No, I mean, it's, it's true. And uh, I, I've been a fan and a watcher of your network going back to its origins in 1996 because yeah. Gaines... Uh, and I worked so many years together. Jeremy's at the great. You refer to Jeremy Gaines, our old uh, uh, associate here, our, a great colleague, and he's one of the guys who really did work on the inside and learned how to work on the outside too. Well, so on that point, Chris, you've seen so many iterations of what MSNBC has been trying to do from its inception to where it stands today. You are the top-rated show in prime time in the lineup. Uh, where do you? Where do you cast yourself now between Fox and CNN? Well, we're the place for politics. I think I uniquely am fascinated. I think you've suggested that with the way it works, how politicians work, that what they do professionally, what goes on to, to create the, a bit of theater in some cases, but always work from behind the scenes. I've told people this so many times that the best television I've ever been part of was the five-week recount in Florida back in 2000 because it was the one time that you could see on television all during the day what politics really is. It's not giving speeches. It's not debates. It's not press releases. It's really the scramble for power behind the scenes using your strengths and working the other guy's uh, weaknesses uh, like you did in Florida. These counties are mine. Those counties are yours. I want to recount this way. You want your recount that way. It was so much like the battle for legislation, for example, and everything I was through with Tip and Reagan, which was you play your strengths, as Kirk O'Donnell used to say, play your strengths. I really want to get into Tip and Reagan, but let's focus a little bit on the present, maybe sure. as it relates to to that those months in 2000 in November and December. Let's hear a little bit from President Obama in Boston at Faneuil Hall this week. Now, this marketplace is open now. Insurance companies are competing for that business. The deal is good. The prices are low. But let's face it, we've had a problem. The website hasn't worked the way it's supposed to over these last uh, couple of weeks. And as a consequence, a lot of people haven't had a chance to see just how good 
the prices for quality health insurance through these marketplaces really are. Now, ultimately, this website, healthcare.gov, will be the easiest way to shop for and buy these new plans because you can see all these plans right next to each other and compare prices and see what kind of coverage it provides. But look, it's, there's no denying it. Right now, the website is too slow. Too many people have gotten stuck. And I am not happy about it. And neither are a lot of Americans who need health care. And they're trying to figure out how they can sign up as, as quickly as possible. So there's no excuse for it. And I take full responsibility for making sure it gets fixed ASAP. We are working overtime to improve it every day. Every day. Chris Matthews, we Democrats had a bit of a holiday uh, in September and October during the shutdown with Ted Cruz and John Boehner sort of running circles around each other. But now uh, you're seeing the full strategy of questioning Obamacare come out and you're seeing real missteps on the part of the administration. How do you view the polyoptics right now of, of a president traveling up to Boston, the cradle of Mitt Romney's first effort at health care and, and whether he's actually able to push back at, at the attacks that are coming? Yeah, I think I think we've seen a, a pretty predictable strategy on the right. Let me start with that because you're right. There was a democratic timeout there. In fact, timeouts are bad for you politically because they give you complacence, and you don't need that. You get out of training. You think it's just easy to watch the other side tear apart, tear itself apart. But the Republicans, especially the neocons and the right wingers on war, and everyone really on the right for a decade now at least, have done something called conflation. If you didn't like 9/11, let's go to Iraq. You know, if, uh, if John Kerry uh, you, it displeased you with his anti-war position after uh, uh, Vietnam, it suggests that the guys who made those complaints are really attacking his war record. And you get them on, on character then. They always take one thing, apply it to another. And now they're trying to say that if you don't like Obamacare, you must have accepted our tactics of shutting down the government, risking the national credit rating, all those tactics. Well, I would argue... Democrats are stupid, and I don't think they're stupid, in allowing the Republicans to say, well, Obamacare hasn't come out as well as it should have, therefore our tactics are acceptable. By that definition, Joe McCarthy was totally acceptable, because if there was communism, then it was okay to be a McCarthyite. And in fact, McCarthy made communism look relatively better than it would have, should have looked, because he was their best friend by his tactics. Uh, they really want you to say, oh, Oh, Obamacare isn't as good as the president said it was. So I guess uh, this guy, this guy Cruz, who I never heard of before, was right in trying to destroy the country's uh, credit, credit rating. Uh, and, and anything goes to justify the, the ends. I think we've got to be so careful as journalists and as people on the progressive side of things to constantly referee that and say, wait a minute here. Just because there's problems with implementation doesn't justify this all-out sort of terrorist economic or politics you're practicing here, which is if we don't like something, we shut everything down. That, that's a pretty good appraisal of what's happening on the right, but sometimes... Let me answer your question better, because you had really directed the Democrats. I well, think the president's problem is that there are problems between discrepancies, clearly, between the way it was sold, as is often the case, anything gets sold perfectly, and then you've got to deal with the... With the uh, when they send back the product and say, I don't really think you gave me what you told me you're going to give me. The promise out there, I just talked to one of my producers about it this morning. The problem is, and it is a real problem, you can't say you can keep your old policy because he should have said at the time, now, unless you got some skeletal uh, policy out there that really doesn't protect you, some catastrophic policy you're paying five bucks a month for, that's not an insurance policy. And the reason you probably like that policy is nothing's going wrong with you. That's one of the weird ways we think. If we've been healthy and haven't need our insurance policy, and somebody says, how have you been doing under that policy the last two years? You'll say, great, because by fortune and good health, I haven't needed it. On the other hand, if you've had cancer or some life-threatening, terrible, chronic illness, and you've had to rely on your insurance and found out that, hey, guess what? This wasn't the real policy that you thought it was. That person will say, I can't wait to get a real one. But that's the problem of explaining this. And in selling the product, he didn't get into this. Right. And I just want to question, Chris, how effective a salesman he is. You are you appropriately call out in your book, Tip and the Gipper, the political uh, and production skill of people like James A. Baker III and Michael Deaver and Reagan himself as the actor, always fast with the quip. 
and it, it, and also I think of my boss Bill Clinton. And so, it, just on the polyoptics of this, if you were uh, Dan Pfeiffer or before him David Axelrod or Robert Gibbs, would you be thinking back to your days in the at the D trip or when you made it into the speaker's office? Would you be advising Obama to do this differently from a both of a rhetorical and a stagecraft standpoint? Well, yeah, but you're opening up a real can of worms because um, on the facts, I mean, why didn't they have it ready? I mean, I thought Sebelius was great yesterday. I thought her, just on the optics, I think uh, she came off very calm yesterday or either this week. She uh, she didn't get flustered. They took direct shots at her personally with this stuff about Kansas and the Wizard of Oz and all. And I thought she came off in a way you want to come off as someone who's sympathetic and as someone who's trying to do their job. Uh, I don't think that's complete damage control, obviously, because people have to live in their real lives. But, you know, the president going to Massachusetts is always the smart move. I remember a, a George Sr. going up there and, and, and taking a boat out into the Boston Harbor and showing how dirty it was uh, to make the case that Michael Dukakis wasn't such a great environmentalist. I think it's always smart to do the Inchon landing. Go And there they're going back to the Heritage-inspired uh, program that uh, became Romney Care. It's just to put people off balance a bit. I think it's tactics, uh, Josh, right now. I don't think they're going to be able to turn this around until they turn it around in reality, perhaps at the end of November. You well, all, Perhaps. You... But it's really going to be, let's face it, this, thing is, this thing's going to be judged politically on their ability to straighten it out. Speaking about Boston, Chris, you have the wonderful anecdote uh, in Tip and the Gipper of when Reagan, after the 1982 State of the Union, travels up to the Iyer Pub and lifts a, a pint with the working men of Boston, yeah. but then goes out to an event out in the suburbs. And you sort of say that You are Tip- really good at this, because that's exactly what you're doing on the air. This is great, because that's the problem. If you, st- if you get your picture taken with a mug, and by the way, Reagan didn't even drink beer. He hardly drank at all, but that's okay. It's good theater. And that the Irish pub is an image that, by the way, Tip O'Neill despised uh, uh, barroom campaigning. I was with him one time up in Connecticut when Charlie Gibson was there from ABC. And everybody loves it. They love talking about the Irish, especially if you're not Irish, and booze. But if you are Irish and you grew up in that culture where men wasted their lives and their family paychecks at the, at the corner tavern, it is a very sad story. So he didn't like it. But then, of course, you're pointing out that Reagan went over to a, uh, a 128 uh, group of high-tech people and, and said we should get rid of the corporate tax altogether. And then he said, I, I know I just uh, I put my foot in the mouth and I'll regret this. And he did. Yeah, but 30 years later, Chris, I, remember, I still remember the Irish pub. I have no rem- recollection of 128. You're right. It's it's like Tip's picture on Cheers. It's one of those one, with George Went. It's one of those pictures that makes the posters. Yeah. Hey, hey now, what were you saying last week about that uh, do nothing Congress down there in D.C.? They're a bunch of clowns. Hey, you think so? Huh? Yeah, you can take the average guy off the street. And you can do a better job. Nah. Sure. Yeah. The bozo right here could probably be a better congressman than them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I may run for office someday. You do that. <laughs> You're out of work, too, huh? No, I'm a speaker of the House of Representatives. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> I'd make you Tip O'Neill and me a horse's butt. <laughs> you said it, not me. Uh, you only pay about a, a, a couple paragraphs of attention to it uh, in the book, but I'd love to hear sort of the backgrounds of you and Kirk just talking with the speaker about whether or not to actually fly out to California to the set of Ted Danson's show and doing this wonderful uh, back and forth that George went. Well, actually, I had nothing to do with that. And I don't think George did either. What happened was Tip was doing a favor for one of his secretaries. Her son was a casting director for Cheers, and it was a favor. It's one of those things with Tip, it's serendipity. He, he spent most of his life doing favors for people. After he didn't have to run for re-election anymore, he had a seat guaranteed. He would, he would love to campaign for other people, do favors for other people, and never wanted to do it, even seen doing it for himself. That was just a favor. That was classic tip. But it and turned yet, out to be, what, as you know in optics, if you can get from the, the nightly news into prime time, if you can find your way into the American cultural setting where you're part of their setting, you're, you're there, you're, you're one of them, the average person, and, and you, you know, everybody knows your name at Cheers. If you can get to be one of those people that everybody knows your name and likes you as a person, that's where Reagan came from. 
That was his great strength as a politician. He didn't go to the popular culture. He came from it. And guys like Kirk O'Donnell and me and Bill Clinton, the president, we grew up watching GE Theater every Sunday night at 9, and we really liked Ronald Reagan. We really liked him. He was an incredibly popular figure in our country. He was number three in the Nielsen's one year. He was always up there for like 10 years. I mean, the guy, eight years rather. A major figure in our lives, not really an actor, a person, Bill, uh, Ronald Reagan. Let's hear that clip from uh, Reagan on GE Theater. Ladies and gentlemen, your attendance this past season at our General Electric Theater indicates it's one of your favorite shows. We're very grateful. Starting next week, we'll present during the summer months those stars and stories of this season which you've liked the best. It's an outstanding and impressive lineup which includes such Hollywood greats as Catherine Grayson, Marjorie Gower Champion, George Sanders, Dan Duryea and Piper Laurie, Ray Milland, Ronald Coleman, James Stewart, Jack Benny, Betty Davis, Joan Fontaine, Art Linkletter, Ann Baxter, and next week, a return engagement of a delightful play starring Greer Garson, the glorious gift of Molly Malloy. Until next week, then, good night for General Electric, where progress in products goes hand in hand with progress in the human values that enrich the lives of us all. That's why, at General Electric, progress is our most important product. So, Chris Matthews, in uh, Tip and the Gipper, uh, you paint some very interesting pictures of the origins of these two men. And sort of ironic origins because Reagan, the conservative, comes from uh, hard scrabble backgrounds in Illinois. Uh, Tip O'Neill comes from sort of a more machine politics, yeah. but a comfortable setting in Cambridge, Very Massachusetts. Much. Talk about Reagan and and how he rose to his fame as a young actor, but then he really had to struggle as a man in, in Hollywood. Yeah, I think that's where uh, my boss got him wrong. I think Tip, uh, my boss, I never called him Tip, Mr. Speaker, always, but He's, I think he thought Reagan was like a lot of guys you come across in life, really good looking, uh, hell fell well met, has everything handed to him. It wasn't that way with Reagan. Yeah, he had some breaks. He basically made it on his voice. That's one thing Tip always said. He had this great broadcast voice, this cowboy voice that the American people loved, and Tip would really focus on that. But he made it as a broadcaster uh, doing uh, Chicago Cub games out in Iowa, and then he just was determined to make it into the movies. He had been in acting in college. And he went out to uh, Santa Catalina to watch the Cubs train one, one spring. And he's staying at the uh, hotel out there at the Biltmore. And he notices up on the marquee, somebody he knew from Iowa was performing that night in kind of a uh, cabaret act. And so he called her up, got a date with her for dinner between the two shows, and somehow got her to get him in touch with her agent, who got him in touch with a casting director. Next thing you know, he had a $700 a week contract with Warners. And then after all those movies... He, he got to join the Irish club at the commissary at Warner's because Pat O'Brien took him under his wing and invited him to have lunch with him in the, in the big shots like Cagney and the rest of them and Spencer Tracy and a few other non-Irish like, uh, I guess, Bogart. But generally it was an Irish clique and he got into it. And when Pat O'Brien got the job as uh, Newt Rockney in the great Newt Rockney story, he got Reagan the job. And so it was. And then later on after the war, when Reagan came back from being in the, the special unit making movies for the war, propaganda movies, he couldn't make it into the fighting services. He tried. Uh, he comes back and his career's faded. It happened with a lot of these guys like Jimmy Stewart and Pat O'Brien. Their careers really dissolved. And he had to go out there and start making B-movies. He's embarrassed by that. The parts were pretty pathetic. He desperately wanted to be a, movie, uh, a cowboy star. He couldn't get the roles. He's out in Vegas finally. Uh, playing the role of an MC without any real talent, telling Irish Thanks to show, Lou, Was- right, Thanks Lou, to Lou Wasserman. Wasserman. And at that point, I think I would have looked for another agent, but Lou Wasserman's got him out there very much like uh, you know, Johnny Fontaine and The Godfather. He's been told to go out there uh, to work in Vegas and start introducing it to the popular crowds. And, uh, and then somehow out of nowhere, Lou Wasserman gets him this gig as hosted of the GE Theater, and it's just starting out, and he travels across the country by train. He didn't like to fly. He's back making 100k a year, which is a lot of money, guaranteed income, and he's a figure. And he learns how to give speeches to regular working men and women, and develops that craft of his to talk on the stump really well. And as I said, became a household name as as host of the GE Theater. It was a amazing comeback from a guy who had basically given up. I I talked to somebody whose husband was one of his agents back then, besides Wasserman, said how he was in tears. He kept getting beaten time and again for the parts after the war. It was really getting to him. Meanwhile, his wife, Jane Wyman, had become a superstar, and uh, she dumps him. She comes home one day and says, you bore me, leave. She tells him to leave. 
So he's lost his marriage, lost his manhood, I guess most people would feel. I was heartbroken when I read the way you wrote that because it's. I think of Reagan uh, try, as a young, successful actor, then making the war movies and then trying to figure out what a guy, a relatively young man, is going to do with the rest of his life. And his wife, the superstar actress, tells him to vamoose. Yeah, it's like it's like The Star is Born with Judy Garland and, you know, and James Mason. It's a... Uh, it's hard to believe a woman could be that cold, but she's carrying on a thing with Lou Ayers during, during Johnny Belinda. Reagan was saying he was going to make Johnny Belinda the co-respondent. It's funny. He went out and drank a lot. I guess one time in his life he did drink a lot. And he hung out with you know, William Holden and lucked out again. Uh, ended up on a higher cliff. Some people fall off cliffs, end up on a higher one. I've seen that in life. And, and he found Nancy, who saved his life. And Nancy, she's gutsy. She was out there trying to, after coming out and graduating from Smith, I was out there trying to make it as a movie star. She was making some headway, and she met him and gave up her whole life. I'm friends with Nancy. She just gave up her career to become his gal and in the old school, and uh, and he came back. And so his comebacks, and then when the TV career came to an end in the early 60s, he met her buddies, and they decided they are going to bankroll him, and he went out there and spent a, almost a year campaigning like Hillary did in upstate New York, and it worked. The people liked him, and Pat Brown thought he was going to kill him, and he got beaten by a million votes. And I tell you, the guy always, he, he liked to say this, he loved it when people underestimated him. And I got to tell you, Tip O'Neill underestimated him when he well, first l- came in. Let's move, th- th- let's uh, turn back the clock again and bring us back to North Cambridge. Chris Matthews, that is... Uh, 10,000 men of Harvard. Uh, paint a picture of young Thomas P. O'Neill Jr. in North Cambridge. Well, he was the townie. He was the little chubby kid from up in North Cambridge, miles away in many ways from uh, from Harvard. Uh, cutting the lawn down there with shears on his knees because the overseer, who sounds like a Simon Legree character, would say, up on your, up off your ass, O'Neill. Work off. And he had, a, he had a clip with his knees around the, uh, on his knees around the trees up on Harvard, uh, Harvard Yard. And uh, he resented it, as you might anybody would. He thought he, he resented it. He says, I think it was more than that, that he really resented the fact that during Prohibition, when you're not supposed to drink, all the Harvard swells were up there in their linen suits and, and boater hats, drinking champagne and openly right under the tent. And he said that he, he said he resolved at that time, and this is very Dickensian, that he was going to make sure that his people, meaning the Irish, Italians, the other Catholics, were going to someday get to go to Harvard. And so that was like a turning point, at least the way he looks at it in retrospect, to what drove him politically. Let's like Reagan was driven politically by the left wing, even communist oriented uh, unions he had to deal with in the late 40s and the high 90 percent tax marginal rate he faced. Uh, they, they directed his politics. And then he decides to take Jack Kennedy's seat or, or takes Jack Kennedy's seat when he moves up to the Senate and moves up through the House, uh, where he lands uh, in a leadership position in the uh, early mid-70s. I love yeah. the anecdote that you include about how uh, Tip O'Neill himself really quashed Vice President Agnew's efforts oh. uh, to try and stay in office. He, he is, I got to tell you, Tip uh, amazed me at times and his personality ability to have a sea change. He can be very friendly, Reagan said, he could be, and then he'll turn into a piranha uh, quickly. I mean, I dealt, I dealt with him for six years as working for him. He says, hey, I can tell you, I know what that mood was like when he shifted on you and decided you were the problem. Uh, but Agnew had come to him trying to escape the U.S. prosecutors because of a corruption situation. He was very much guilty involved in taking payments from contractors in, uh, in Maryland when he was governor. He was still taking bags of money in the executive office building when he was VP. It's hard to imagine somebody doing that, but he was part of that culture. And uh, he came to the House to Carl Albert, who was then Speaker, begging basically to have the House take up his case, believing that the House would bury the case in the House Judiciary Committee, just take it up and basically shelve it. And they were about to do that. In fact, the, uh, the parliamentarian was about to write the bill to take it up. And Tip walked in a room and said, no deal, no deal. He said that was really when I think he began to challenge Carl Albert and basically say, I'm going to take over this place. I'm the boss, not you, even though he's number two. And Agnew was finished. Vice President Agnew, burying himself as a tax cheat, resigned the day under an agreement which protects him from prosecution on charges of grafting. Agnew then had a cop a plea, I'd go no low contender, right? And he was finished. And it all happened because Tip O'Neill blew the whistle and said, no, you're not escaping justice. The Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, 
our desire to be of help. I hope in the coming months and years that many of you will follow the example of those who've gone before. They, I think, are serving this country well. And in a very real sense, they are serving a larger cause, the cause of freedom and the cause of a peaceful world. They are demonstrating their interest in people who may live on the other side of the globe, who may live in poverty and misery, but who, because of the presence of the Peace Corps, live in hope. I hope this spirit will grow, and that hundreds of others of young Americans and older Americans will go overseas to show our best side, to show how much we desire to live at peace. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. I hope that you will join. Chris Matthews, there's a third major character in Tip and the Gipper when politics worked, and that is uh, young Chris Matthews. Can you tell us how uh, you reacted to Kennedy's call to service and where it brought you? Well, um, like Hillary, I started as a sort of libertarian as a kid, and we all love Goldwater's libertarianism. I sort of turned off on that before he ran for president, because I was pretty politically involved as a really young person. I mean, it sounds crazy how political I was. I was thinking about politics in 52 when I was like six, and I was constantly thinking about things like Social Security, and my dad would say, well, you really can't be a libertarian because if we don't have Social Security, then the people that really don't have lives that are organized or even have enough money to save will be broke at 65, and it'll end up on the, on the, on the dole. So that doesn't solve any problem. You've got to take personal responsibility. We need Social Security. I said, okay. On civil rights, you can be a libertarian, a, a strict constitutionalist and all that, and an and, and original intent. But you'll never have, if you did it that way, we'd never have gotten a, a, a judicial review of the Civil Rights Act of 64. We would have had to wait for three-quarters of the state to change the Constitution so we could have public accommodations. It couldn't have worked. So all these things that I had as a puristic view, like listening to Ted Cruz today, he's still at that point. I keep saying, yeah, but there are exceptions, and these exceptions drive any just society. You can't just be a puristic a libertarian because it doesn't society in the marketplace doesn't work that way. Anyway, so I was thinking along those lines, but the Peace Corps to me, it was during Vietnam. I was one A. I, I I was up in Montreal with a friend of mine who was looking for a job. I never thought of doing anything like that. I thought of becoming like Al Gore, a public information officer in the army, a four year hitch. I thought about teaching. I thought about Vista. I thought about uh, my roommate became a finance officer, direct commission. I had a real uh, principal position. I wasn't going to put a uniform on. In a war I didn't believe in, even there was plenty of places in the military that didn't involve combat. Most of them didn't. And I said, I'm not going to pretend to be part of this soldier thing when I'm not really going to fight. And so I said, i got to do something positive for the country. And the Peace Corps offered adventure, something positive. I'd been in graduate school in economics. I want to do economic development. And I went out there. My basic attitude was I was a bourgeois Che Guevara. I was teaching capitalism in Africa, driving around a motorcycle, a Suzuki 120, while he's over in his motorcycle in Latin America. Call it romance. But I thought I was over there battling for freedom and, and democracy, and he was over there doing his thing. So I, I knew fully the left. I knew all about the Vince Ramos brigades of guys going there and cutting cane and all that for the, so that the, the, the Cubans could go work for the, get their educations. I know all that stuff. I was very much a part of the 60s, but I want to do something positive. And thank God I got to spend two years with a bunch of guys and women who were just like me. And we're all positive, upbeat, adventure-seeking, trying to do something really good in the middle of nowhere in Africa, which was fantastic. I got a, a, very much a comfort with African people. I was the only white guy Anywhere around me, most of where I was working, I'd be out in the bush, literally out there in some place, just like Ramar the jungle. Or I'm trying to think what it looks like. Not Ramar, like Tarzan. If you ever see the escarpments and you see the, the vast bush of, of African veldt and you're way out there in the, in the desert pretty much, and it looks just like Africa. That's where I was for two years. And I think it had a lot to do with my feelings about ethnicity and race and all. I know it played a role in me getting to think less like where I grew up in sort of middle class uh, suburban Philadelphia. And serendipitously, government service later brought you back at least twice to Swaziland, first for the yeah. the state funeral and then with, when Kathleen and, and your young yeah, son went up I there always, again. I always take a chance to get it so far away, and I, I've been back five or six times. And we, Kathy, my wife Kathleen, and I love Africa, and our kids grew up. One of my kids went when he was six months old, and I just love the place. I, maybe I'll end up there someday, but I, I just they always say about people who go to Africa, especially Europeans and Americans, you'll always come back. Because there's something out there that's uh, 
it's just great. I don't know. We're all from Africa, by the way. I can explain that. To, <laughs> the anthropology is pretty obvious. Maybe it's the, the homing. Maybe it's the elephant's graveyard. But we are all from Africa. And the leakies are right about that. And the, uh, and the, the, some of the people on the hard religious right are wrong. We actually do come from there. And it's a fact. Chris Matthews, your book opens up on your one of your final flights on Air Force One as a White House speechwriter, uh, working with the likes of Jody Powell, Hamilton Jordan, uh, and uh, uh, and the White House staff. And you're flying to Plains, Georgia, trying to put the best face yeah. on the on Reagan's defeat of Jimmy Carter. Uh, you think back about the talent that was in that White House, uh, and you think about the current administration. Uh, why wasn't Jody and Ham and that gang and you able to make Carter better able to connect with the voters to to prevail and get himself reelected? God, that's, that's so many questions. Um, first of all, we all like Carter. We respected his values. We believed in everything he stood for. So that you got to start with that. We all thought nuclear nonproliferation was an important value. And maybe you shouldn't have said my daughter thought so, Amy. Maybe that got him in trouble. It sounded de minimis or something, or humiliating or desperate even. We all believed in the human rights effort, even though it was obviously practiced unevenly, especially in Iran. And that's what got us into trouble over the years. And we all believed in energy independence of some sort. We had to do something about it. So everything Carter, especially human rights, everything Carter did as president was exemplified by his post-presidency. He was a good man. I personally think, and I don't say this awfully, but just looking at him, I think he was a pacifist. And maybe that was a good thing at the time. I don't know what the correct response would have been to the taking of our diplomats, our 50 diplomats in Tehran. I don't know what a Reagan would have done. I think a, a scarier president like Reagan or Nixon especially might have intimidated the mullahs from backing the students when they grabbed the diplomats. A president who really looked like he might go to war or bomb them ferociously. For whatever it was, they were not afraid of Carter. And that's what killed him. And that became the emblem of all the double-digit inflation, the double-digit interest rates. You got It's hard for you to imagine, Josh. Think about what it was like to have to put your money in the bank if you have any savings, and you get a money management account, and you're so happy I'm getting 9% or something. But it's like 20% inflation. Yeah. You're getting killed. And every family that's retiring, every family that's working is getting killed with inflation. We Americans are not Brazilians when it comes to inflation. We're more like Germans. We hate inflation. Hate it. We'll live with unemployment. But I'll tell you, inflation cracks into the American system, uh, skin, and they just hated him. And then when the hostages were taken, I had a guy throw the bottom of his beer glass at me. He was so mad at me. People were furious at people working for Carter and Carter because of the humiliation of every single night with Ted Koppel watching the Americans troop by with their blindfolds on and the flag being burnt and trampled. It was horrible. And Jimmy Carter didn't have a way out of it. And it became obvious after Desert One when our guys got burned over there trying to uh, save the hostages. It was, it was terrible. And I think the debate killed him. I think Reagan came through in that debate. And when he said, there you go again, I'm telling you. We're all the speechwriters. Of course, you remember this as a staff guy. We're all sitting around watching the, spe- uh, the debate together. We all decided that, uh, that Carter cleaned his clock, of course. Yeah. Was, but you were in the circuit. <laughs> you know what it's like. It's, it's, it's inside the uh, membrane. You did great, Mr. President. Yeah, you were. Well, we all thought he did because we just were rooting for him. We thought Reagan didn't know what he was talking about. And Reagan didn't in terms of Medicare. He had campaigned against Medicare in the early 60s. And when he said, there you go again, Carter was right when he went to that point. But the public didn't want to hear about Ronald Reagan in the early 60s. It looked like Jimmy Carter was just desperately trying to hold on to his job, as the Brits say, clinging to office. And uh, he didn't look good. And, and Reagan, I'll tell you, I knew we were in trouble. I read about it in the book when I was over at Georgetown one day with my wife on Labor Day. And I, I went into a bar at the third edition, you probably know it, and went in there to see how we did on the nightly news. And I want to see how Carter did with my speech that day down in the South. And when I walked away with, my God, there's Ronald Reagan in shirt sleeves at the Statue of Liberty, recovering that wonderful icon of American assimilation and immigration, and saying this is where the, the Democratic Party was let down its people. I have talked with unemployed workers all across this country. I've heard their views on what Jimmy Carter has done to them and their families. They aren't interested in semantic quibbles. They're out of work, and they know who put them out of work, and they know the difference between a recession and a depression. Let Mr. Carter go to their homes, look their children in the eye, and argue with them that it's only a recession that put dad or mom out of work. 
Let him go to the unemployment lines and lecture those workers who have been betrayed on what is the proper definition for their widespread economic misery. Human tragedy, human misery, the crushing of the human spirit. They do not need defining, they need action. He said, this guy is the Gipper. I mean, he was the guy that is taking back from the Democratic Party, the working middle class, Irish, Italian, Jewish, more culturally conservative people who feel very patriotic and let down by Carter. And he just grabbed them and took them in the election. And we're also going to play uh, another clip, which I think sets up this conundrum that Thomas P. O'Neill Jr. faced in January of 1981 with this very different kind of not old school Washington Paul as his foil, if we can hear uh, Reagan uh, paying for this microphone. Is this on? Mr. Green, you turn on my microphone. You asked for me if you would. I am paying for this microphone, Mr. Green. Chris Matthews, that's so classic. It's so great because that was Spencer Tracy in uh, State of the Union with Catherine Hepburn. And I got to tell you, he took that line and, and killed with it. And by the way, the guy's name was Breen. It didn't matter. I know. He, he seized the moment. It was a case where he was setting up George Bush, his rural opponent up in New Hampshire, where he beat him up there. Bush was trying to get everybody in that. No, Bush was wanting for a one-on-one because he knew he needed a one-on-one with Reagan in that debate. And that was the deal. They'd agreed to a one-on-one. And then Dole and I think Jack Kemp showed up and some other people showed up. Crane showed up. And, and, and out of nowhere, Reagan says, I want everybody in this debate. So he was brilliantly able to divide his enemies, and Bush was caught completely flat-footed. He didn't know how to deal with the situation. He looked like some guy, some guy's afraid to compete openly, and Reagan looked like the real American who actually had paid for the microphone. Uh, but it was right out of the movies. And so the Speaker of the House in early 81 uh, has to now deal with the person who prevailed against President Carter. He now becomes the Democratic standard bearer. Uh, Ted Kennedy is marginalized in the Senate. Uh, there's no one at 1600 Pennsylvania with a D attached to their name. And what? because your book sort of is broken into a couple different uh, sections with maybe the, the first two years before the midterm elections as the key development period of this relationship between Tip and Ronald Reagan. What did Tip make of this guy early on, and how did the assassination change his change the dynamic? Well, he was um, he, he still honored, I think, the old uh, culture of a honeymoon. I didn't use the word in the book, but it has occurred to me since that the tradition was when a new president gets elected, especially with forty-four states, that he gets his day in court. He gets a sort of a oh. Uh, you give him the benefit of the doubt, and you let him bill, his bills come to the floor. And Tip said, everything's going to come to the floor before August 1st, so I'm not going to stop him. If, if I could stop him, I'm not going to try. But I think he was bamboozled by Reagan. He really liked him when he had him up to the house for dinner, the White House for dinner. They had him to a birthday party for Reagan. Uh, Reagan was nice to him, very respectful. Uh, Tip said something pretty wise guy to him. He said, welcome to the big leagues. Reagan didn't like that. Uh, they talked about Notre Dame and how how he said how Tip said how much I liked him in that movie. We all grew up with that movie, by the way. All the Catholics did, and it was a big. We all root for Notre Dame. That never stops, and and they knew that whole culture. So they shared the Irish thing together, and and Tip said how much he liked the guy, and at the same time he began to realize very quickly he was what he said he was. He was a, cons- a very tough, effectively cold-hearted conservative. Meaning he was quite willing to cut all the programs that Tip believed in, like Pell grants and. Meals on Wheels, and all the problems that affected people that didn't have needs. And Reagan just saw that as a way to save money, and Tip said, no, you're killing people. And so they went to war pretty quickly in principle, and then, and then the assassination came, and that was a game changer because, you know, Tip, of course, I talk about him being at the hospital at George Washington University Hospital and praying the 23rd Psalm together and kissing Reagan on the forehead and, and that very intimate moment there that they shared. And, and Tip really felt uncomfortable there, and he came out of that. And I'm not sure he, was, he wasn't ready to fight the guy. And then he took another one of his junkets out to Australia, New Zealand, and he came back, and he was pretty much caught, caught off guard. Reagan had him beat. He, he lobbied better than anybody. I, I mean, I think Obama, President Obama should pay real study to how Reagan was willing, despite his personal lonerness, like Obama's a loner and Carter was and Nixon was, you got to do the job of, of lobbying. And Reagan lobbied brilliantly the Democrats and br- not just the Southerners and brought them aboard and brought, gave a big majority for the spending cuts. And, and he was like Lazarus in the Bible. I mean, he, when Reagan came back from being shot and told that wonderful story uh, from the House chamber with everybody in the country watching about the kid who said, I hope you don't show up in your pajamas 
because you've been in the hospital. I mean, it was a tearjerker, and it worked, and the country was so proud that our president had gotten through it, telling those little jokes about, honey, I forgot to duck into the doctors. I hope you're all Republicans. People love that kind of uh, defiance and charm. They love it, and it's theatrical. It's like your whole program's about it. It's a theatrical, but damn it, that's how we live. We want heroes, and he was playing the hero, and and everybody said, God, this guy's lucky enough to get through this. Maybe there's something, there's some fate here we ought to pay attention to, and maybe we ought to take a chance on what he wants to do rather than just try to thump him. The whole spirit of the times was give Reagan his chance. And in the spring and summer of 1981, Chris, uh, you— paint a picture of a Speaker of the House who turns sort of a little progressively more gloomy, dark, yeah. and really frustrated by really the the lack of his ability to communicate on the same level as Ronald Reagan. Yeah, that's when I started to move in and work with him more closely. He, um, big guy, 300 pounds, uh, overweight, out of training, bad eating habits, uh, complacent, uh, believing, that, you, know, you got to realize what I mentioned complacency being a problem for politics. Uh, when you win the House for 50 years, you don't get that good at running it. You, the, the sloppiness, the cor- little petty corruption comes in, and, and the absolute confidence you can run the place forever uh, began to dissipate. He began to worry about losing the House, uh, literally losing it, nominally losing it the next election. And he, uh, and he began to, I think, wake up politically. I mean, this thing was a great, it was at the end of his career, I think both these guys got things done, and I talk about the, the ways they did get things done, like Social Security, because they knew they didn't have any act after this. This was their final act politically. Reagan knew this was the only presidency he was going to have, and Tip knew it was the greatest challenge of his life. So I think he woke up to it. He made some changes around the office. He brought me in as his AA, but really made me his, uh, his communications guy. I had the title and the money of the top guy, but I was really there to help him fight Reagan. And he really embraced Ari Weiss, who was a genius working with us on legislation, and Kirk O'Donnell, as you know, a great political strategist, and me on communications. And I think it was the best political team I've ever been near. And uh, we worked out a way to fight him, which was basically let Reagan have his wins in, in 81, let him have his schedule, put him in charge. And by September, we could start blaming the, re- the coming recession on him. And he wouldn't be able to hide from it. It would be his economy. And that was the role. That was really the thinking of Kirk O'Donnell, which was make sure strategically he's on defense by September, having been this hero in the spring. And it worked. And by the following year, we picked up 26 seats. We got almost all the seats back we lost. And, uh, and Tip was on top again and was able to really push through a progressive fix of Social Security and other areas and also a jobs bill. And you point out in your book, too, other ways in which the speaker assists the president on foreign affairs, reaching out to Mikhail Gorbachev, his visit to Moscow. But then, Chris, I mean, just now pivoting to the present uh, and the relationships between President Obama, Speaker Boehner, these the group of people who say people like Chris Matthews are just making this up or it, it it's so... Well, who's that? Uh, who who is that? Well, it's like I had a, I kept that. I mean, here's a journal the Craig, every, every here's day. Here's the Craig Shirley argument. Oh, come on, come on, week. Craig Shirley, come on. Uh, I mean, these but, are just but, these are just political advocates who want to just the way, justify the things they are. All I can tell you is this: every sentence in this book is either taken from Reagan, Ronald Reagan's diary, and these are all verbates. My diary, which I kept exactly day to day, every day through all the torment of those times, actual verbates of the speaker's press conferences every single day, and contemporary headline journalism, the Times, the Post, the Journal, the Wall Street Journal, and the Globe, all contemporary, and then the Hedrick Smith interviews for the Times, which were contemporary. Everything is absolutely documented and archival here. And for somebody to come back and question it is simply a political posture. That is a political posture up against objective fact. This isn't an argument. This is somebody who doesn't like the uncomfortable fact that what we're going through today is not ordinary. It's really a bad new norm. And I'd like to say, I'll give you my advocacy. I'd like it to get back to when we can actually, at the end of all the ideological argument and struggle, which is appropriate to our country and critical to it, we reach some kind of resolution and move on as a republic. That's what this book's about. Got it. And Chris, just one other element to the mix is... Are, is you and Rachel on MS. It's Bill O'Reilly and Sean on Sean Hannity on Fox. You know, Reagan and Tip did not have to deal with the four of you sort of uh, talking to your bases uh, every night and, and stirring up the base so that Reagan and Tip could actually find some comedy in the middle. Is it well, more I difficult think, I think for Boehner and Obama? Look, everybody does what they do. I, I, have, um, I do think every one of us 
has a, an audience because we do something distinctly from the others, first of all. It isn't a series of a point of view re-announced over and over again or replayed. I think Rachel has a unique contribution, which I think Rachel does differently than anybody ever did before. It's kind of a academic policy look at things. If you listen to her, it's not really about politics. Her program is heavy on policy, much more than I am. And in the intricacies and the contradictions, much more like Michael Kinsley's columns over the year. Very smart, analytically looking at things and bringing on and basically providing a lecture on what the key sets of issues she talks about each night. I think some of the other people on my network are like that. Al Sharpton is an advocate. We know here he is. Lawrence O'Donnell's a late night program, a little more uh, urbane maybe than the rest of us, uh, a little more cultural, pop culture. My show is about politics, and it's, it's, uh, it has both news at 7. We're very lucky to be on when the news hours. We're able to present the news and do analysis, and my passion's apparent, and my point of view is what it is. Uh, but I do think people read us or watch us just the way they used to read the afternoon newspaper, where they come home on the train and read the bulletin, like in Philly, which I used to deliver, and, and they look at the columnists like James J. Kilpatrick or William F. Buckley, and they have points of view they get that way. I admit it, this reverberates more. But I, I, don't think, um, I don't think it's any more than opinion that people are seeking. I, I don't think it creates opinion, but I may be wrong. This is a good argument, by the way. I do think that my program does emphasize the need for action and not sheer debate, that in the end you have to get something done. I hope that one thing I push every night is, is government and self-government is all we have. If we don't govern ourselves and we keep having stalemate policymaking and refusal to get to some kind of conclusion an occasional compromise and a very occasional common ground. We're not going to make it. It's just going to be like the Greek government before the coups or all those Latin American governments where the parliaments get stagnated to the point where people just don't believe in it anymore. And that's and dangerous can't... at times. It's dangerous when people look at the numbers now. Sixty some percent of the people yesterday, this week, said we want to fire our own member of Congress. These numbers are Tip O'Neill left office at 67 percent. Ronald Reagan in the mid 60s. We used to believe, uh, 70% of the country back in the 50s believed the federal government could do what it set out to do. Uh, this new kind of politics with Craig Shirley, whoever these people are, who actually defend the way things are, how can you defend a system where less than a quarter of the people respect the system that we've got? What, would they have an alternative to that system of self-government and election of representatives? What is this alternative they, they offer? Stagnation and, and, and vitriol. And you can't say, Chris, that, that this week you yourself weren't trying to hold this administration to the fire on matters related to Benghazi, which is, for many people is still a lot of, has a lot of Well, you know, I, I think I asked the questions. I'm, i I got to keep asking some questions. I got some answers from people this week online. And um, I, think, I think there's something that, that's animating uh, the two who have been in the military, uh, McCain and Lindsey. They've got some, and I don't think it's all tactic. There's something they don't like. I don't think it was the description that it was a, a protest because of the movie, the anti-Islamic movie, that turned into a, 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 an attack on our facilities over there in Benghazi. I mean, that's, that's the PR arguments. That's politics. There's something they believe, what I, I'm giving them credit here, that they believe wasn't done to save our people in the, in the extreme moments when we heard about it in Washington in real time. Did we not unleash every force we had with any chance of getting there? Did we do the utmost to save those people? after the fighting had begun. And I, I'd like to believe, since I do respect these people as patriotic guys, that that's what they're after, that it isn't just political advantage. But I don't know what Secretary Clinton thinks about this. I think she feels she did the right things. The president, we're going to have to hear from them. But I don't think the Republicans, those two particular guys, are going to give up on this. And they're willing to hold up a, a Federal Reserve chairman uh, a, a nomination. I mean, I don't even think that's related, of course. But they're getting pretty ferocious. Chris, last question. You're the author most recently before Tip and the Gipper of Jack Kennedy, uh, Elusive Hero. And as we approach the 50th anniversary of his assassination in Dallas and a slew of new writing from all sides, uh, some very interesting stuff. Have you learned anything new since you put down your pen on your last book about President Kennedy? Uh, no, I tell you something. I was in the Safeway the other night and I saw the uh, autopsy picture right on the front cover. I don't know. Decency's gone. Uh, I, I don't think people should be looking at that when they go to buy groceries, but it's there. It's a new grossness, a new indecency in our country. As Monaghan used to say, declining decency downward. Um, when I wrote the book, I'll simply tell the truth. The only way I could write the life 
and the wonder of Jack Kennedy and what he did for us in terms of the Peace Corps, the excitement that it gave us, the positive feelings we had about our country, and what we really got moving in the right direction, like he stood up for civil rights, he did it, was to blind myself for those years I was writing that book to what happened in Dallas. I had to just get that out of my mind, how it ended, so that I could write about what it was. I think there's a sad sort of mawkishness where we focus on the assassination and, and, and blind out the man's life. And I really tried to do that so I could bring back to people today what it was really like up until November 22nd, 63, what he was like up until that moment where he was in the car trying to figure out with Jim Wright and John Connolly, why is Fort Worth so blue dog, blue, uh, uh, yellow dog Democrat and why is uh, Dallas so right wing Republican? trying to figure that out and studying with John Connolly to the last minutes of his life, the nature of enterprise, where it's in Dallas, you have high-rise insurance and finance companies where the next floor up is the, your vice president and the executive vice president, and people are all voting the way they want to get personally and career-wise, whereas over in Fort Worth, they're working in corrals and they're working on flat, uh, factory floors, and they're voting alongside the people they vote with. And so they vote Democrat. The people voting Republican are the people heading in that direction, white-collar people moving up, trying to become higher class. And John Connolly saying that's what it was all about, economics. And, of course, there's Jack Kennedy trying to figure out how am I going to carry Texas in 64 and figure this thing out. He was a working politician to the very end of his life. That's what I wanted to capture that everybody else wasn't as interested in I was because of who I am. You know, That's who you are, Chris Matthews. Chris Matthews, who in the midst of our wonderment about how our government is failing to work these days brings us back to a day when politics did work uh, with the story of three main characters, uh, Speaker Tip O'Neill, President Ronald Reagan, and young aide Chris Matthews. Chris, thanks so much for joining Josh, us. What a great Olympics. program. What a great idea for a program. Brilliant. Thanks, man. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. This is the only channel that takes you inside Washington, D.C. My message is it's just not realistic. We're serious about growing our economy. Our economy. It's clear the president's is growing again. Not helping the economy. The economy. Bureaucracy. Monetary policy. Jobs. We'll be able to reduce our deficit. Fighting over power. It's starting to make a lot more sense. This is POTUS.